Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz, continuing our history of flight. And we're going to today go from flight to um, Aleister Crowley. But before that, <laughs> Adam, how are you? Uh, real good. How are you? I'm doing well. How is the weather? It is 62 degrees and sunny. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I was uh, detained. Uh, duty, called, duty called one week and then weather delayed. Um, stopped me another week uh, but now we're like 75 and sunny again so we got that going for us I'm, you guys uh, had like a rumor of a snowstorm and everything fall apart the, 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 the world shut down we got three or four inches and it was just it was over it was over <laughs> it was uh you know pure pure um apocalyptic fiction after that so well, we're here we're alive good. good my trash i don't think is ever getting picked up again well, yeah, naturally. I mean, right. You got you got yeah. a couple delays. I mean, you, you can't expect them to come back and do their job later on. Right. I mean, that's why I've, you know, that's why I endorse throwing trash in public dumpsters. <laughs> you know, official official brief pa- brief history of power uh, endorsement of Stance. that activity. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah, people I mean, think that some of our other takes are controversial, but but this will actually be the most controversial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. somebody will there will be letters and calls. Yeah. Is he really doing that? Look, what, what I do in the uh, in the back of a rallies or a checkers dumpster is none of your business. You're, you're probably <laughs> putting more wholesome things in those dumpsters than the businesses themselves do. So 100%, certainly yeah. more nutritious. Yeah. You know, it's all good. Really, it's a service, a ministry, if you will. I have a heart for illegal dumping. <laughs> do you then set it on fire or are you just going to let it leach out we have of a, other, a tear have, in the landfill? We have non-associated people who will start fires. Cool. For liability reasons, I have to tell you all that that's a joke. So, <laughs> right, right. And we do not endorse illegal. We do, we dumping. do not. We do not endorse illegal dumping yeah. in any in any form. Not even asbestos. I, I'm glad that, in view of the things we're going to talk about today, that that we in 2024 America are required to say things like, "I I have never thrown away a bag of trash in the wrong place." Right. Because, right. you know, the, the kind of stuff that was going on even 100 years ago is so remarkably strange and, and even evil in many cases yeah. that the fact that bags of trash are anyone's concern is remarkable. It's true. It's the, it's the society that we live in. All right. So last time we uh, got a little weird with the, uh, with the Russians. Well, yeah. And, uh, and so today we're going to get to America where we invented powered flight. And as we talked about in the first part of this series, that the early days of powered flight were just merely theory and, and what ifs, what, what could happen. But right. now we're getting to some boys who are going to say, yeah, what if we actually built things and tried things? Now, to be sure, they tried it in Europe and other, and other things, but, but we got it right. And that's, that's what matters. <laughs> that's and right. so that, that brings us to the Wright brothers. Yeah, the Wright brothers, also known as the Bishop's Boys, because their father was a bishop in a somewhat obscure little denomination called the Brethren in Christ. And they are an example of something that if you look at 19th century America, you will not see the same amount of theorizing that we talked about in the last episode with the Russians, but you will see an incredible amount of energy and the conditions of that energy are things that that make me pessimistic that we could that we have or could have anything similar without radical change today because for example thomas edison is is allowed to do things like you know produce a newspaper on a moving train and then distribute it when he's like 19 years old so you have to you have to give people sort of <laughs> room to try things and make mistakes that generally people don't have anymore. And it's the same thing with the rights where they move out of a childhood interest that both Wilbur and Orville have in machines and how they work and new inventions and things like that. They move out of that through selling bicycles, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that they actually fund what they're doing 
And this is another condition is that you need freedom, but you also need, you need not just a sort of like, we'll let you do what you like. We'll let you fall, fall out of the tree if you want to, but you also need the freedom provided by money, which buys time. And the rights do that for themselves by really devoting themselves to mechanical experimentation and letting their bicycle business in Dayton, Ohio fund their airplane experimentation. But this is something that I've talked to several people about in, in getting ready for this episode is that the rights can do things in the late 19th and, and the very earliest years of the 20th century, like take a couple months off to go tr test out the things that they've built in North Carolina, right? So if, if you could be like, well, I'm going to work for 10 months this year, and then November and December, I'm going to take off. And I'm gonna right. I'm gonna go to this other place and haul all this stuff there and everything. Those those are conditions of life that it, it seems almost impossible to to realize in our time. Yeah, absolutely true. You know, even if you could get an employer to agree, now granted they had their own business, but even if a business owner could get away, he would be accused right. of being lazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and and in addition to that back home in in Dayton they have and and you can still visit it and it, it's really kind of cool because it hasn't been developed so yeah so what the brief history of power crew is going to do is they're going to go to the uh, ham radio convention every year oh it's going to be outstanding in, in Dayton and they're going to see all the sites while they're there <laughs> yeah it's just maybe you know, it's maybe hit up king's island as a treat you know it's going to be very wholesome you know and um you know you may have heard of tours or cruises well we're gonna do dayton ohio so get ready okay right we're going back to the 60s we're bringing dayton <laughs> back and um what what happens there is you can if you do go there there's kind of a built-up area that the national park service has put in where where a lot of the rights business locations are are replicated as well as a guy who was kind of in the same area paul lawrence dunbar who, who's a poet just kind of randomly but he did know the rights you have to go north of there, kind of past the Air Force Base that we'll talk about later, to something called Huffman Prairie. And this is where modern insurance, risk management, essentially also risk aversion, would, would have made everything that we're going to say impossible because Mr. Huffman, who was a local business owner, just let the rights kind of mess around in this field. And, and it's a yeah. pretty big field and they would ride the trolley out from Dayton to Huffman Prairie and people would wonder, you know, what are they doing? You know, <laughs> they're, they're just, they were, they were also, let's be honest, they were a little weird, right? They were a little, they were kind of strange. Yeah, you'd have to be. It, you'd have to be. And all of those are conditions of what they're doing, you know, and, and unlike Thomas Edison, for example, who in, who in many ways is a very similar figure similar especially in his ascetic devotion to what he's doing the rights don't encumber a family with their devotion mm -hmm. so edison neglects all of his six children and both of his wives not not wives at the same time just to be clear for reasons the listeners probably don't understand <laughs> in order to be in his lab all the time to invent incessantly to take out the incredible number of patents he did every year until right three years before his death the rights don't do that they Tesla's are, another example he just yeah. ends up holed up with a bird at a certain point right yeah the rights are more like tesla they're not like tesla in the sense that tesla does lots of theorizing and then develops something really big the rights will tweak something, and then there's lots of documentation on this and a kind of a slim book with really great illustrations called How We Invented the Airplane, and I think Wilbur wrote that. Yeah, you can pick that up, but you can see that what their, their whole method is very much like Edison's and that it's just kind of try this, try this, try this, try this, try this, and you use incredible amounts of time in order to get any kind of advance but that's the way they did it all of the conditions that we talked about are going to be necessary for any of that to happen without it it's i mean it's sort of i, I imagine like a modern 
Orville or Wilbur, you know, sitting at his engineering job that he probably had to get because he because he had to go to college in order to make a living, especially doing anything mechanical or electrical like he's interested in and just kind of dreaming about what it would be like to employ himself. You know, instead of yeah. instead of like selling bicycles and then doing what he wants with his own time. Well, and it's interesting too. Uh, you know, they, they begin with gliders first, and all of the things that we consider just obvious today about flight. You know, they're really pioneering things right. like a tail, right? Which which they don't believe is necessary. I mean, at least one guy dies in a hang gliding accident. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you know, that's how dedicated they are. Well, that's that's also something. I mean, the just the acceptance of risk. Like, well, you know, a certain number. I mean. We're, we need to dig a Panama Canal. You know, a certain couple thousand of guys are going to die. Like, this is just the way that life works. Like, people die. <laughs> we don't, I mean, I, we just, that's so distant from our thinking. And I, and I think that, if I'm not mistaken, when they're first experimenting with powered flight, they uh, decide who's going to get on there through a coin toss. Yes. Yes, they do. And they wouldn't fly on Sundays. So that's not a day for experimentation. That's right. With Super Bowl Sunday coming up, I feel the need to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, there there was no flying on Sundays, and that that actually was the least strange thing about them to the local residents of the Outer Banks, right? Where their successful experiments finally occurred. Yeah, I mean, so Kitty Hawk, they're going to have the first successful powered flight, and then everything sort of develops from there. The military is going to be interested very early, but the military is interested in some form of power even before this. Right. Or excuse, excuse me, some form of powered flight even before this. Right. Yeah. And before we before we kind of trace the rights involvement with the military, which will be really how they will not only obtain their flying machine patent is through the assistance of a very politically well-connected patent attorney. But you have to know that the military was interested in these things going back long before. And this is something where in the history of aviation, very often this, this is kind of glossed over or it's seen as merely a means to an end. Whereas a lot like Western exploration in the United States, it is almost impossible to imagine the history of aviation or aerospace without the military. Be and that doesn't mean that nothing would exist without the military, but that its spread and its application would be relatively shallow or non-existent without the military. So if you go back to the Civil War, for example, it's probably the first time you have something you could maybe identify as aviation. The South tries this, but they just don't really have the resources to, to make them. So it's really kind of a Northern phenomenon that there are hot air balloons used for intelligence, for signaling, for understanding what is going on on the battlefield, especially behind the first line of the enemy. So the hot air balloon is used a lot like the cavalry is used in the Civil War for intelligence gathering and, and confusion. Yeah, there was some artillery. There were there was, some yeah. bombs. Yeah, right. and I do a theory that eyesight was just better in the 19th century because no screens because reconnaissance uh -huh. in a hot air balloon is literally going a thousand feet in the air and looking around <laughs> right right but if you've never you know if you've never seen anything like that before i mean i i can't imagine how remarkable that would be and right you know it's it's used it's used mostly in virginia in the Eastern theater of the civil war. And the, the major guy here is Thaddeus S.C. Lowe. There is a civilian subplot to all of that, where there's jealousy from rivals of his, all civilians, of course, who are trying to develop this into something other than, and this is where you have to think about powered flight without the military needing it, is that it was, and mostly is, the preserve really of the curious and the wealthy. Right. It's, it's not right. I mean, the right, the rights don't start out thinking like, you know, here they're, they're very unlike Edison in that they're not worried about practical commercial application. <laughs> they're just like, right. It would be really cool if machine go high and fast, you know, like that's right. 
And, and the way that maybe you think of a hot air balloon, like maybe if you go to a hot air balloon festival, you know, that's cool. That looks interesting. Well, unless the military gives people money or, or furthers what they're trying to do, everything winds up where hot air balloons have wound up, where really unusual people will try to, you know, fly helium balloons or something across the world. But, but generally speaking, nobody's like, you know what, you know, what's going to dominate the future, hot air balloons, helium balloons, right? right? That's not happening. And there's a, there's a version of that kind of a story, like, well, what happens once the military drops it? And that is with the flight technology that most people thought would become dominant, which was not heavier than air aircraft, but lighter than air aircraft, or what we would call dirigibles or, or blimps. Right. And again, I still, you know, dream of a world where that is the, you know, a big cruise ship in the sky and you're just, right. you're just yeah. going. And and that was the yeah. idea, right? Yeah. And, and when people, if you go, if you look this up and we'll talk about some of this later on in the episode, probably, but if you look up unidentified flying objects, a term that doesn't exist yet, but things like that in the 19th century, what you will find is that people were seeing airships. Yeah. Right. That's what's reported. There's a big rash of them in 1896 and 1897. What we called 40 in phenomena in those days. Yeah. Right. And what, what happens with those airships is that that that's what people think will be the wave of the future. And, and in a way that is obvious from the first and not obvious with heavier than air aircraft, airships can carry fairly large numbers of people. So the commercial application seems pretty obvious. We actually invest aping the Germans, as we'll talk about next time in this series, aping the Germans, we invest pretty heavily in airships in World War I. And what that develops in the 1920s into the 1930s, both in America as well as in Germany, is a fairly widespread military first and then civilian usage of airships. So the civilian use is, is traffic, is pleasure, is tourism. The military use seems unlimited, and it's why the only airship probably that the listeners are familiar with is going to be the Goodyear blimp. The reason that's there is because of the chemical research and technical capacities in Akron, Ohio. Ohio, kind kind of a big deal for this episode in Akron, Ohio, to develop airships specifically for the U.S. Navy. And all of that is kind of getting bigger and bigger and bigger until I think a little suspiciously, the Hindenburg crashes. Right. There's some questions still lingering. There are some questions. Yeah. About the timing of the announcement that this is all horrible or the fact that you probably don't know there were survivors to the Hindenburg, but it, with the destruction of the Hindenburg in the early 1930s, you're, you're suddenly dealing with a situation where airships are no longer going to be thinkable or viable for most purposes. It's really one major disaster that kills that industry. Yeah. And, you know, whether by design or not, that's that's just simply how it played out. Right. Right. Yeah. And the press is important here because the press covers airships as promising, promising, promising until the destruction of the Hindenburg. And then the press, certainly in the United States, is very anti-airship. There, yeah, it's it's similar to what we saw with FinFin in the 90s and 2000s, yeah. right? The miracle weight <laughs> right. loss drug that they're all lauding or what you're probably going to see with Ozempic in a couple of years. Right. Yeah, there will be a there will be a backlash whereas what the rights get in the press is very different. The rights get ignored at first and there's a standard biography written basically at the rights behest that you can you can find that tracks this process of the rights are generally ignored uh, actually until after December 1903. Mm -hmm. Even in December 1903, there is a press release sent out, but basically only the hometown newspaper and one other covers it. So there's just disinterest. So the, the rights, as far as how, you know, which technologies get developed, there's always, there's not just a role of, was this a good idea? Was this a good thing? There's also 
how is the publicity managed? And the rights have the good fortune, but also the the savvy really to turn what they have done into better and better and better press over time, rather than to start out highly favored as airships or balloons were earlier, but then to run into problems as everyone does, whatever you've invented, and then to decline from there. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, the, the first few flights do just keep getting better and better. Kind of once they get that first relatively short flight, they, they keep on keeping on. And then, then the dies really cast there. Right. You know, what you mentioned with World War One, that's where the fighter pilot is first romanticized, you know, in a great way. Yeah. And I think people, not not so much nowadays, but at least up until fairly recently, to go from Kitty Hawk to World War One, of course, World War Two. Okay, then after that, you're getting helicopter technology. Everybody's excited. And then you come to the, the beginnings of space flight. And which I mean, you know, uh, apologies to the Russians. Of course, they were they were doing that, you know, in the fifties and stuff, and and we were we were trying too. But really, in the sixties, it comes into its own, and Americans are largely fascinated with it. And now, spaceflight is almost mundane. Even spaceflight is is mundane because nobody's impressed by anything anymore. And this is why, like someone like Elon Musk is um, laughed at, you know. He tries to launch a rocket, it blows up. Oh, look at this idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, and this is kind of what I was talking about a few a few minutes ago. The rights fail and people die, but they keep but they keep going. And in the early 20th century, that's an inspirational story. Right. They would have never gotten off the ground, no pun intended, today, because they would have just been laughed off of Twitter. They would have been memed out of existence. <laughs> yeah, that I mean that. That, that is just so deeply true is that n- downstream from press coverage or something, or, or maybe upstream depending, is the idea of a meme which just invalidates something, invalidates people, invalidates what they're doing, whatever. And Well, we yeah. have a culture of people who do nothing and develop nothing. Right. Wanting to um, denigrate the people who try something. And... That's really just seen as a virtue today. <laughs> and I mean, generally, if you do nothing or you know nothing about a specific subject, the absolute easiest thing to think is that it cannot be done. Right. That it's that it's just obviously impossible. So you need to stop trying. And I, I you know, I think I think it's partly because the rights are so single-mindedly focused. I mean, they don't they're not getting they're not getting nasty DMs or you know <laughs> right. something, but what they are getting is you know people wondering on the trolley aloud as they're going up to Hoffman Prairie, are these boys nuts? You know, are, right. are they? Are they like why are they wasting their lives like this? Because they and, could also they could also have been more successful businessmen, right? If they had simply developed the bike business, so that we would have right bicycles still the way we still have Schwinn's. Yeah, and the, but they weren't willing to settle, you know, and and they had a gift that men need to all men need to cultivate, which is not caring what people think. <laughs> it is a very powerful and beautiful gift. There's there's yeah. no question about it. Yeah, I mean, it it really necessary to trailblaze. Yeah, you have to be a little bit reckless and and willing to just not care about not. I'm not saying don't care about lives, you know, because we do have a dead hang glider here, but not care about you know, what darts people are going to throw at you. Right. Because they're, they're going to do it anyway. Even if you, even if you succeed, the same people will, will be coming after you, possibly out of jealousy or just partly because it's what they do. It's a cottage industry now. Right. And, and, one and way- you had muckrakers in those days, but Twitter made everybody, Twitter, uh, social media, I'll say, has made everybody a muckraker. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think that denigrates figuring something out, you know, if you can, of course, you know, on your own. Right. But it, but it's like the idea that somehow, especially with a matter that is complex or technical or, or whatever, that you have grasped it all right after, you know, after an, a, a verily early AM deep dive followed by fitful sleep. And then you wake up and feel horrible and wonder why. 
that somehow you you understand more than this guy who's devoted the last two decades of his life to the project it is just kind of silly right so it's not it's not that you need to respect expertise on on the sheer basis of authority or credentials or lab coats or something but you do need to recognize when someone has put time into something mm-hmm. and therefore just grasps at aspects of it a sense of possibility whatever it might be that you find incredible that you don't that maybe the reason they understand maybe the reason they sense that that's possible is because they actually understand what it would take to get there right so they're actually going to be successful and so by 1910 they have their own flying school and that's going to lead the lead directly to um dealings with the air force yeah. Or what would become the Air Force? What would become the Air Force? What is, yeah. is at the, what's still the Army Signal Corps at that time? So it's sort of a right, not just military intelligence, not just communication, not just an Air Force, but sort of all three at the same time. Still, yeah, a lot of people forget a lot of our agencies and branches of the military started out as something else and uh, right have 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 developed and changed over time. Cavalry's not riding horses would be one example. But so sad. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm sure now somebody's going to be like, no, there's a few horses left. I'm sure <laughs> there are. Few, yeah. There's like a it, performance unit. Right. Yeah. The, that's the, it. The Wild West show version of yes. the mounted cavalry. And, uh, you know, uh, we had Camel Corps at one time too, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, NASA is going to be one. We'll get to that a little bit later in the episode uh, that develops out of a, a former agency. Yeah. And we've seen the change over in agencies, even in our lifetime with, with NSA, for example. Right. And so, um, but the Wright brothers are here at the beginning and yeah, yeah, operating a flight school, a pretty significant number of pilots trained by Orville actually, uh, at the flight school and okay. You can go to flight school today, whatever. I mean, these guys not only invented, you know, flight, they invented pilotry and (laughs) everything. Like it's, it's really hard to explain, you know, how, how uh, essential their research is. Yeah. And I mean, if you, if you are thinking about, okay, well, how does this work? We talked about the, the various conditions of freedom that are necessary. It's also that a lot of times, partly because of the way social media warps us, we think that if you're not popular right now, you're not going to get anything done. The rights are successful in founding their flying school in selling their technology. This is all pre-World War One, not only for us, but even for the Europeans, because they are determined, not because immediately they walk into an office and they explain, we have figured out how to adjust the airfoil so that it actually moves in accordance with the flow of air that therefore, you know, we're not going to just plummet to the ground that's the that's the control mechanism that is revolutionary for December 1903 right it's two it's it starts with two guys but what you find if you look at the roster of alumni of the flying school is that it's essentially everyone who will matter mm-hmm. in American aviation particularly in military aviation for roughly the next 40 years right they're all there and th- this is pre-world war one mm-hmm so, so we're interested in this and, and we want these things and we're paying the rights to develop these things. And the rights are not soon. They are not alone because lots of other people are developing lots of things yeah. throughout the, throughout the world, but they, they start by simply being determined and their determination is then passed on to guys who at the time in say 1910, 1911 are really sort of risking not only their careers in choosing to go into something kind of arcane and without specific application in the military. They're also risking their lives just to train. Yeah. And early (laughs) on, I mean, it's, it's a rocky start with the army. There's several fatalities. Yes. And, uh, basically people who aren't the rights are going to say it's the design of the aircraft and Wright's going to say, no, 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 it's pilot error. And this is all kind of tied up in a patent dispute too. Yeah. And, Yet they, they persist and the army persists in this. You know, had had they not, we would have been way behind in World War One, even more so than we probably were as far as aeronautics go. Right. And you know, this uh 
it, it's kind of your standard, you know, early 20th century story where guys develop new technology, get bogged down in patent lawsuits for a long time. Yeah. Uh, because, because the elites are always going to be there trying to get their beaks in or trying to stifle innovation. It, it, it is interesting to me. I mean, Edison's a wealthy man. You know, the, the rights will eventually do do well, but a, a lot of times in developments, especially in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and really probably mid even mid and early 19th century too, you have developments stifled by business interests, which is is quite interesting. Yeah, uh, and you know you're going to go on you know the social media of certain gurus and pastors who will be like, nope, capitalism and robber barons they 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 push forward innovation, not necessarily true. <laughs> yeah, you gotta have your weirdos for innovation you, you really do. do and i i think that if you look at if you look at the specific history of almost any kind of innovation the idea that somehow entre- entrepreneurial spirit or or business application is the way to innovation right. is, is almost never true <laughs> it's, just, right. it's just because a businessman's interest is Okay, what can I do with this, or how can I sell this? Right. Right. And that, I mean, that, yeah. You know, it's like in the, the word innovation itself has a very positive connotation here. Right. And that's really not what it means. I mean, the Swanson TV dinner is an innovation by definition, <laughs> but it's purely a business move because right. they they undersold turkeys or overbought turkeys one Thanksgiving and had to figure out a way to make these stretch and last forever. <laughs> and so you get you get a very downgraded dinner. Yeah. It's an innovation and it's revolutionary, right? but it's not necessarily beneficial, you know? So, so that, that while business can push quote unquote innovation, not, it's not always great innovation. No. You know, um, yeah. and, and really what we mean by innovation today seems largely to be, is it more convenient for me? That's an innovation right. to modern man. Right. Does this make life easier? Correct. Is it is it better for me is not really part of the question. <laughs> you know, if if the rights could see Spirit Airlines, would they have maybe packed it in? We don't know. <laughs> I you know, commercial traffic and and maybe that's when people think of airplanes, they're either thinking of military jets or or commercial airliners. Commercial traffic comes is is really expensive. And comes relatively late. You're looking at yeah. the 1930s before this well, is. Well, we do have one delivery from the rights, which seems more like a publicity stunt than anything. They yes. go to Columbus and drop some fabric off. <laughs> and they're paid five grand in 1910. That's that's a lot of money. That's a lot. That's a decent year's salary in Yeah, you're yeah, you're 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 set, you know. You're doing fine. Yeah. You know, it, it, it it's a story that I feel like as we cover even other subjects, it's gonna repeat itself. Guys have good ideas. Guys are singularly dedicated to goal, and uh, people from outside try to destroy it. Right, and you know, rinse and repeat. But well, all right. So that's kind of the that's kind of the right brothers. There is there anything else we want to say about them before we move on into some even weirder stuff? No, because I think they actually, you know, they actually roll very easily into this larger story that we're telling about what the what the conditions of innovation actually are going to be and 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 also where that's going to go in directions that the bishop's boys would would never and, and did never take it. Yeah. So through the efforts of the Wrights, we end up with Wright Patterson Air Force Base eventually. Yep. Uh, great tour, by the way, if you can make it. Yep. I, I believe that's where Patton's guns are held. But don't quote me on that. No, we should I do think, an episode on right. that, on the murder of General Patton. But <laughs> my favorite esoteric believer. But uh, anyway, yeah. So we get Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and so the military is going to go whole hog into aviation. So, all right. So we've conquered the sky, for more or less. So what's next? Where you yeah, go from wh- there? What is what is next was was already envisioned fairly early. Right, because before our entry into World War One, in nineteen as early as nineteen fifteen, we have something that the listeners probably have never heard of, but is pretty important, and used the Wright brothers' first flight for their seal. Mm-hmm. So, what you would see on one of those state quarters for maybe like North Carolina 
is already on the seal of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And I want to talk about that seal because it's not like a seal you've seen before. It's literally just an oil painting shrunken down or, or like a tasteful watercolor. It doesn't look <laughs> like what you what you expect on a seal. No, no, no. And, and but I, I I think the significance of that seal is not only that they located our country's aeronautical research and hopes in the Wright brothers or or the work that they had done on which everyone else was going to build. It's also that the seal is not designed to look old. Right. So if you think about things that are going to come after this, even stylistically like art deco, that, that, that sense of aesthetics comes out of this optimism about what is actually possible, especially aeronautically. And aeronautically, we're not looking just to fly. We're now looking to fly really fast, really high, maybe even into space. The reason you probably never have heard of this is partly because what's now called NASA, it was called the NASA originally, because its predecessor organization was the NACA. Not NACA. Yeah, yeah, not NACA. It was not NACA. Yeah. (laughs) The the NACA was behind the the all the research that we were doing up to and including stuff that we'll cover next time when we talk about, or maybe in a couple episodes from now, talking about what happens after the Second World War. Even before we go into the first, however, we are looking to go faster, higher, maybe even into outer space, hopefully. And the NACA is our our biggest and best effort in that direction. Right. It's going to be founded in 1915. So that's how early they're thinking about this. Yeah. And it'll last up until the late 50s. And then it becomes NASA, NASA. That's right. You know, they're going to, um, it's going to be like what we get with NASA, where they develop a lot of things that will be used in other applications. And we forget how much we get just out of the space race or the space program. And as we've talked about many times before with the, in the 20th century, the progression of technology begins to happen very, very fast. And faster in our time than even in the than in the fifties, sixties, or seventies. But you know, why does the military? So we talked about innovation yeah. and the myth that it happens at the civilian level due to business, but the military is really pushing these. Right. Why are the military pushing it, and how are they able to do it faster than civilians? Uh, other other than funding, the military pushes it. In, in in a variety of branches, and that's important to understand, is that NACA has somewhat parallel agencies in the Army, for example, which is what Werner von Braun will originally work in and for when he comes to the United States, in the Navy, and then eventually also reduplicated in the Air Force, whereas NACA is technically a civilian agency. The reason being that the military can have the same long-term outlook that a a scientist can or an inventor, mm-hmm. if you want to put it in a less technical or, or academic connection, because the military can wait for something to turn from theory into practice. Right. Whereas a businessman really cannot do that. And certainly with the growth of business reporting, ticker tape, lots of things, the time horizon for business shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. I mean, we hear complaints today about, you know, everyone is geared towards quarterly reporting. Well, that process is already ongoing in the 19th century. So people's ability to think, if I fund this now, what will I be able to do in 10 years decreases and decreases in business. And it doesn't in the military. The military needs results. And that's partly why NASA is going to get so much funding, especially as of the Kennedy administration, but it has a longer time horizon and can afford to, to think more like a scientist, more like a researcher, more like an inventor. That's originally why they get in there. There are, there are some other things that we'll talk about, you know, shortly that are going to have, you know, have their own justification as well, a little stranger, but it's because of their longer time horizon. So you can have somebody like. Henry Arnold, Hap Arnold, who's going to be fundamental three decades later to the founding of the U.S. Air Force, training with the rights, 
on what is then still Huffman Prairie and then eventually will be Wright Field. And it's going to be named after a, a young man who dies in an air accident. That's Patterson. That's who Patterson is. So Wright hyphen Patterson. But people can go there and devote themselves to things that don't even seem like they're going to work. Because if they do, potentially, all sorts of advantages, just purely military advantages can be gained. So there's just a longer time horizon that the military can operate with, however stupidly bureaucratic or whatever it might also be. Right. 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 Which is what you always you know, end up with. Right. Yeah. So we're now getting into, so the right generation is passing away. Yeah. A generation of men who are born, you know, let's say around 1915 or so, yeah, uh, or 1914, will begin to will begin to um, take an interest in the rapidly developing field of aeronautics, jet propulsion, right, rockets, chemistry, those sorts of things, all coming together. And so, the second generation of, or perhaps third, depending on how we're counting, of researchers will be a little bit different from the rights. The rights are old American, you know, classic 19th century Americans in a lot of ways. We belong to a weird offshoot of Mennonites and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, we're just gonna, we're just gonna be wacko out here um, right. on the Ohio Prairie. At some point the switch flips and we start getting into weirdos. Now, not everybody. I think that the, the, the military brass, especially at this time and, and up until probably post Vietnam are still going to be, Oh, what's the word we want to use? Uh, Americans, you know, like in the <laughs> right. in the in the classic sense of it, right. uh, old blood, blue yeah. bloods, yeah. and um, but now we're getting to something different, yeah. and that's kind of where we're going toward towards the end of the episode. Things get a little weird, and how do they get weird? They they get weird because you begin to get not so much in World War One as between the two world wars. The, the beginning of an integration that doesn't exist in the time of the rights or Thomas Edison or things like that. And that is an integration between academia conceived as a set of research institutions. So not really teaching institutions necessarily, or primarily at least, but research institutions that becomes integrated increasingly with the military and with government funding. Mm. Prior to this, it's not like that doesn't exist, but it's not institutionalized. So it it comes into being like, quote, Professor Thaddeus Lowe. I don't think he had a job at any institution. Professor Thaddeus Lowe trying to sell military applications for balloons in the Civil War, but that evaporates with his disfavor among Union Army brass, and it's just gone. It's not like the Union Army is systematically funding research after that. What happens with aeronautics is that by the time that exists, World War One means, um, and even prior to World War One, with the with the foundation of the NACA, that there will be an enduring interest by a, a, a party with almost endless funding, the government, in research into this specific area. So by this time, you do have research primary institutions like MIT or or more important for the history of aeronautics, like California Institute of Technology, Caltech in Southern California. And that will allow researchers, not, not really inventors exactly, but researchers like Robert Goddard to realize things that if you go back to the last episode in Ad Astra, people like Tsiolkovsky never could. Because the Soviet Union in his time, or the Russian Empire before the Russian Revolution, really just simply did not have the resources, and he did not have the institutional capacity and wherewithal to realize what he was trying to do. And I think once you integrate modern academics into things, yeah, you're going to get some people like the rights you're going to get a fairly devout, apparently Lutheran and Werner von Braun later on. But, but you're also going to get, you're going to get human beings. And this is, this is why this matters so much. You're going to get human beings who are interested in 
aeronautics for the kind of science fiction like reasons that we will so frequently find mm -hmm. that science fiction is really more about theological dreaming right than it is about fun stories <laughs> right and and that's what we've been saying through several episodes you can't separate a man's theology from his actions and so we're going to get a man like jack parsons or in most notably and we'll talk you know we'll talk about goddard a little bit and our jet the jet fuel guru but what you know how can these things become connected between we'll say esoteric theology yeah. and the seemingly disconnected concept of rocket science why would those two things have anything to do with each other <laughs> they're connected where that particular person and this is this is much more parsons and edward foreman than it is their mentor theodore von Kármán or robert goddard right yeah those are the guys who bring him in Right. And, and, and you would think would say, hey, what, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like what? <laughs> well, Weirdos? It, yeah. You, you would think that. Right. And, and Robert Goddard is a little bit different than, than, than Parsons, than Foreman, than Fon Carmen, than L. Ron Hubbard in that Goddard is mostly located almost his entire life in central Massachusetts. So he's, he's not, he doesn't, there's a, there's a geographic component to this where there is relatively pure research throughout the United States. There's also a component to this where Southern California matters more than the other regions, not only for the opportunities it will provide, particularly in aeronautics in and after the second world war, but it also matters because it is a place that attracts or that gives rise to in the case of jack parsons who i believe is a native of southern california kinds of people who are completely open in their views not only as to what is technologically possible but that what is technologically possible that openness is then translated into and then there's a feedback loop with their religious views so whereas goddard does not apparently have any particular religious investment in spaceflight per se in rocket science per se somebody like parsons and certainly <laughs> l ron hubbard and you can explain that that nexus better than i can in a, you know in a second but they're they're going to be more like konstantin siolkovsky whom we discussed last time right where for them rocketry aeronautics spaceflight all of it is a means to a religious end mm -hmm. that is not the case for the rights who are Christians or for Goddard, who is not much of anything apparently, but is simply interested in the technology for its own sake. Right. I don't know how much you want to get into the L. Ron Hubbard yacht scam, but maybe <laughs> maybe we'll flesh that out. Yeah, there are you so know. many scams. It's hard to it's hard to pick. Yeah, but but um Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard are bros. Uh, for, the, for those who don't know, L. Ron Hubbard is the founder and inventor of Scientology. But Parsons and him are are involved in a lot of shenanigans, mostly this, uh, notably this yacht scandal involving the purchase of yachts and attempting to sail them through the Panama Canal. But you know, before we get into that. As you as you hear some of the things we're going to describe and time permitting. You'll have to ask the question of to what degree are, are these men devout? And I don't think the answer is the same for each individual. Right. But when we're talking especially about Parsons, a man who's going to be deeply involved in the occult and deeply involved in at least a form of Gnosticism, real Gnosticism, not the modern everything I hate is Gnosticism, but actual <laughs> like demiurges. And stuff. Right. Yeah. You have to understand that this is not the kid in high school who shops at Hot Topic and spent too much time in the art room. This is like a sincere belief in, in black magic and in occultism and in the esoteric. So they are. So Parsons, for example, is, I believe, sincerely devout. And in our context, we mean, oh, that's a very pious person. No, I mean, he's, this man is devout insofar as he's faithful to his religious principles. Right. Which, um, yeah, what which are in, those? Yeah, which involve, okay, so 
he believes in the system of Thelema, okay, which is the esoteric practice pioneered by Aleister Crowley. And, you know, since this is a family podcast, we can't go into too much of this, but we're talking about rituals. Research. Su- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rituals <laughs> to summon demons. A lot of these rituals involving fluids and sexual activities. And in a few notable cases, especially involving a demon called Babylon, it was directly related to where they were performing experiments and related to the success of their experiments. And so there you go. I mean, the conjunction of religion and science there. And it would take a a few episodes to really flesh out what rituals took place where, things like that. But notably, Parsons and Ron Hubbard and other associates perform magic rituals that are related to, at least in part, their rocket research. And that would sound weird. If, if it came out that Elon Musk or um, Jeff Bezos were performing um, you know, black masses in order to succeed in business, I don't know. You know I was going to say people would think that was weird. They might not actually think that's weird anymore. Yeah. But you should think that's weird. Yeah. Um, I, and, and I think that if you look into the motivations, not, not necessarily... I'm not quite so sure about Bezos, but if you look into Musk's motivations, the sense, and this is from what I understand, fairly widespread in the space research field at this point, the sense that earth is no longer man's home, which is, or or cannot be for various reasons, whether you want to talk about climate change or whatever, which is a flatly unbiblical idea, right? There's a new heavens and a new earth earth is in fact our home but the idea that we need to colonize other places i mean i think musk is fairly clear that we need to go to mars as as an outlet or as a backup or as a colony for an earth that will eventually fail for various reasons and if you dig into this stuff a little bit you can hear the echoes of what parsons or even curly were doing in certain things that musk says uh, it's it's just there. Yeah. You know, so one of the interesting things here, so we talked about Babylon, B-A-B-L-O-N, which I believe is actually technically a goddess in theirs, the Scarlet Woman. It's a series of rituals called Babylon Working that Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard perform in the beginning of 1946 to try to manifest Babylon right. on Earth. So an actual incarnation. And what's interesting is, that Parsons is inspired to do this through a fiction novel that Crowley wrote, uh-huh. a 1917 novel called Moonchild. Now, here you have <laughs> Jack Parsons being influenced by a fictional novel to perform esoteric rituals, and L. Ron Hubbard sitting around. Now, do you think he might have gotten some ideas there? Uh, you know, the conjunction between f- fictional texts and religion? Right. Now, I wonder what a Scientologist would think by that characterization. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard is a, fi- is a fiction author, at least in part. And, I mean, that's just a fact. You know, do they, do they take Dianetics as history? Do they take their understanding of how we got here and how we got in the spiritual state they're in? Do they take that as history? Because it's couched within a science fiction story. I mean, what would they call that? I, I they would probably that- push back on calling it science fiction, but right. it's still a it's still a dramatized history, at least for them. I, I think the reason that you know or, you, or a narrative history, right? And you had to give that you know it was a joke caveat about the you know the art kid, the emo kid, right? The reason you had to do that is because a lot of people don't actually seriously believe that new religions could be invented, right? Because obviously everybody would see through it, or so. that's not true. Right. So it, it might be that you, you're able to clearly see this mixture of fiction and nonfiction in the beginning of the religion with what Crowley writes or how this man who's just founded the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, that would be Parsons, right. <laughs> still around. Right. right still guy, and he has all these government contracts, right? How this guy is then going to turn that into unironic, nonfictional religious ritual. This is the way falsehood works, right? This is how false religions go. It's just that in the case of something founded in Southern California in the 30s and 40s, we can actually see it and there's documentation and there are names and 
these people and, had social security numbers. And, and much like we <laughs> right, right, much like we were talking about the nature of the term innovation, uh, also the nature of the term falsehood or, fal- or false religion today. Most of our listeners will hear false and, and consider untrue, and it is untrue insofar as the eternal truth. That doesn't mean unreal. That doesn't mean that the things that they're playing with, although they're probably labeling them wrong, are not real and therefore dangerous. That doesn't believe that it's outside the realm of possibility that right. Parsons actually was talking to or conjuring demons. Right. So it's it's real. And it's not false insofar as there are actually malevolent forces that he's messing with that he shouldn't. Right. It's false because, you know, it's it's untrue. But untrue doesn't mean, oh, it was just play acting fake. or it, right. it was fake. Yeah, right. it doesn't mean that. And untrue and false religion does not mean that these people don't sincerely believe in it. Right. You know, Wicca is an example. We know that Wicca it just was just made up relatively recently. And it has plenty of devout followers, even though it's just an amalgamation of the witchcraft that came before it. But the system itself, very, very new. And yet people are devoted to that. And we would never say, oh, Wicca is dangerous because it's a bunch of people that are believing in something that's fake. Now, there's a lot of fake to it. I'm not saying there isn't, but there's also a very real spiritual danger in what they're dealing with. God would not have warned against these things if there wasn't an actual danger there. Do you, do you, I mean, why, why do you think this develops so relatively early in the history of aeronautics? Oh, well, or, or, or could there have been a Parsons who worked on railroads or who worked yeah. on? Well, telegraphs? my dream is, is to, is to do the transcontinental railroad, uh, you know, stuff one day. Cause that's just, I just love that. And you don't get any of that in this, quite frankly. No. Um, <laughs> I, I think it, it, it you know, it, you can answer it in, in a number of ways. Part of it is we forget how messed up Christianity in America is getting in the 1800s and the downgrade that's going to happen in the 1900s. Kind of that natural, Hey, we've been Christian for a long time. We're going to rebel against this. So the, just the general weirdness coming out of Christianity you have the broad fascination with esoterica in the early 20th century too. Yeah. So remember seances and things like that. Those are fun parlor games for the elite and middle class at this time or, or at the time of say the Wright brothers. And so to me, it, it doesn't seem that far fetched that, well, what's the natural progression you've gone from Christianity to necromancy. So what's the next thing? Let's just straight up conjure demons. At the same time, you have a huge interest um, in the early 20th century uh, in Egyptology and in, quote-unquote, ancient religions. And so people become enamored with that. And so the progenitors of the things that Parsons are going to get into, men like Crowley, they're going to be into what they see as ancient esoterica. So to me, it's it's not surprising that this happens because I think the culture is already there. Yeah. And in, a, and in a broader way than what we think, we tend to think that, and it, it is true, most Americans are kind of boringly Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist at this time. And that's what it is. That's most American Christians, though. Right. What about the rest of the people? Well, the, the large mass aren't interested in anything, but there's a very small minority. And they and they happens to include a lot of elites at the time, or at least a lot of people with money. And their children are then going to be free to experiment in ways that a generation before they wouldn't have. So that's my sociological explanation yeah. for it. Yeah. Now, how does that get connected to um, to space? Well, when you have a lot of money floating around and you have an industry that is largely driven by dreamers, well, outside the Wright brothers, who has the financial capital to dream except sometimes children of parents with means? So you have that. I think that that's, again, the sociological way. Now, let's get into kind of the esoteric then. Okay, so what happens? What's the devil doing here? Well, there's always that thing where science can, it can certainly lead people to God, but oftentimes it leads people further and further away. It's the idea, and Parsons is a libertarian and very much a libertine, so you're going to have that, where man is pioneering himself and lifting himself up. And so the basis of these religions are all hedonistic pleasure and the glorification of man. And so what is more a symbol of the glorification of man than conquering and what's left to conquer, but space. 
And so it, it all goes right into it, the devil whispering in, in Eve's ear. All goes directly back to that. So probably a little bit longer answer than you wanted, but there's a sociological and there's the uh, the spiritual answer, you know, the esoteric answer, we'll say. Yeah, and I, I mean, I also wonder, and this this is going to be connected to our next couple of episodes where we'll we'll leave America for the next episode, but then come back eventually. What What the significance is, if you believe these things are real, that are being done, mm -hmm. right? If you don't, you can kind of take the idea, you know, all Satanism is essentially a joke. You you could say that. I don't say that. I don't think that's biblical, but a lot of people are there. If you believe it's real, what effect does it have that around the time where we are using these weapons in destructive ways, aeronautically delivered, right? So, yeah. you know, I mean, it's right. going to lead, it's going to directly lead to, the greatest loss of human life in recorded history, probably outside the flood. Yeah, with World War, with the cult, with the end of World War II. Yeah, and 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 what what does it what does it mean that at the heart of our productive capacities there, particularly with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, that which, which, which to be clear at the time, you know, we're not as far as the Germans, so. We're not we're not talking purely or or even in this case at all about actual technological accomplishment like we were at the beginning of the yeah, episode. And, and I think this is hard for people to wrap around because we get even greater loss of life in a supposed secular Marxist society afterwards with the USSR. Yeah, we we don't think about our role in uh, a drastic loss of life in the 20th century that is often led by men who have a very different worldview than the USSR do. And then although Parsons is palling around with Marxists, he is cleared by the FBI for Marxist involvement, notably <laughs> something to chew on there. Well, because he, it, he is a real libertarian. I mean, real yeah. libertarianism has actually been tried. <laughs> right. And, and it was Jack Parsons. With his, yeah. And he blows himself up playing yes. with explosives, yes. which is the most libertarian death you can die. Because it's like, if I'm not, it's it's like he gets a truck of explosives for a movie set. Yes. And um, it's maybe, for the movies. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe spills coffee on it and blows himself up. Although some close to him will think it was a suicide. It's a very strange death. I mean, blows himself up. And then his mother is it his mother that immediately commits yeah. suicide upon hearing the news. She does. Nothing to see here, folks. All very strange. And if you look at all, all of these notable guys who are into Thelema uh, and who are into, or any, even things related to that, they, they come to pretty sad ends rather notably. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of them as the completion of the Gadarene demoniac, right? Yeah. That's a good way to look if at it. If there's no investment, you know, if there's, if there's no intervention there by Christ, right. right yeah, if there's no exorcism, you, you blow yourself up in Pasadena in, 19, in 1952 at age 37. <laughs> But it is true. I mean, what is what's happening with the Gadarene demoniac? He's destroying his body. Right. I mean, he's harming himself. That's what the devil wants us to do. And what greater harm can you do to yourself than than these dark magic rituals that involve your body? So you're destroying the body and the soul. So, well, we are coming up on that note. We are coming up on the, the end of the episode. Uh, Dr. Koontz, anything you want to leave the folks at home with? You cannot divorce theology, religion from science. You just can't. And Parsons is a really good study in that. But I think we'll also see in the case of the Germans in the next episode and in the rest of the series, which is called what it is at Astra, taken from the name of Edward Foreman and Jack Parsons engineering company before they develop Aerojet. Their company is called at Astra that the desire to go to the stars is always connected to deeper and broader currents in life, especially religious currents that don't just have to do with the history of jet technology. Right. Well, all right. Well, more, more weird stuff to come here on a brief history of power. This has been a brief history of power. Colonel grills here with Dr. Kuntz. You know where to find us. A martyr's death, the hero's life, the theme for the 10th men's gathering being held this year at Lakeview Villages on April 4th to 7th. We are thrilled to have secured Pastor Brian Wolfmuller as our main speaker this year. Join 150 Christian men to learn how the martyrs of the early Christian church still preach to us with their lives, their lips, and their blood. 
Arrive as early as Thursday for a special Brews and Cues session with Pastor Wolf Mueller, or stay as late as Monday to watch the full solar eclipse, which will be directly over the villages. Visit mensgathering.us for more details and to register. We hope you can join us at the 2024 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Are you interested in entering into or fostering a biblical marriage? If so, set aside May 3rd to 5th, 2024, and join other young Lutherans and keynote speaker, Dr. Adam Kuntz, that's me, for a conference on biblical marriage at Grace Lutheran Church in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Come and learn what it means to have a godly marriage, participate in the divine service, meet like-minded folks, enjoy fellowship, and even learn a barn dance. We welcome singles, couples looking to get married, the newly married, and families. If you're a young couple, bring your third wheels because you just might end up with a fourth. Don't hesitate and register today at whatgodhasjoinedtogether.ca. That's all one word, whatgodhasjoinedtogether.ca. Your marriage is worth a trip to the Great White North. Are you tired of people saying that you must accept the crumbling of Christianity? Are you looking for a place that hasn't embraced the new normal? A church that isn't taking the decline of Christian culture, families, and congregations sitting down? Are you looking for reverent liturgy and biblical teaching that proclaims the mercy of God and instructs you in holy living? Then visit Mission of the Cross Lutheran Church in Cross Lake, Minnesota, where people come for the beautiful lakes, but they stay for the church, where we are reclaiming Christendom. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider? One that values life no matter the stage and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct eCare can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.